0: Oh, hello, guys. Um, this is the um, the first podcast I'm doing on my own. Um, it's a little bit different than having someone with me to talk to and bounce ideas off of. So I'm going to try to do this and hopefully it doesn't suck. Um, you feel free to leave comments if it does. Uh, but this is Papa's Pod. Um, we're going to go over some good stuff. We're going to go over, um, you know, how I approach various malignant hematologic diseases. Um, we're going to go through them all, every single one, one at a time. And we're going to go over, you know, you know what I would expect a, a graduating fellow to know. Uh, we're not going to go into the weeds, into the nuances of like MRD and fancy mutations and all this stuff that, that, that you don't need to know. We're going to go over how to treat the patient in front of you, uh, some of the data that supports that. And I'll go over kind of how I do it. And, and you know, uh, you know, there's no standard way from any of these diseases. Um, And the point of this is this something you can just listen to on a run like I do at the beach um, or wherever you are right now or in the car. You know, they're meant to be digestible and spare you from having to read this stuff because, you know, when you read these things in all the education books, it gets kind of boring. Okay, so I want this not to be boring. Okay, and we're going to start this one off um, with um, multiple myeloma. Uh, my my favorite multiple myeloma, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna do just newly diagnosed myeloma. We'll save the relapse for another talk. Uh, but let's just go over how I think about multiple myeloma and how I approach it. So here it is, Papa's Pod, some newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. So first, you know, what is multiple myeloma? So there's three things. There's MGUS, smoldering myeloma, and uh, and, and multiple myeloma, the actual cancer. Uh, MGUS is just a clonal proliferation of plasma cells, no end organ damage, Um, less than 10% plasma cells in the marrow, M-spike less than three grams per deciliter. Risk of progressing 1% per year uh, on average, okay? Uh, Smoldering myeloma, um, it's arbitrary, but we set that greater than 10% plasma cells in the marrow, but not more than 60%, so 10 to 59, um, or an M-spike greater than three grams per deciliter. You can have both or just one Uh, All you need is uh, one of those and then you're smoldering myeloma and there's various risks of smoldering myeloma, but that's beyond the scope of this talk. We'll do that on another one. I like talking about smoldering myeloma. And then finally, there is active myeloma. And active myeloma, you need clonal plasma cells in the bone marrow, 10%. Uh, And then you need also traditionally what we call CRAB criteria, uh, hypercalcemia, renal dysfunction, anemia, lytic bone disease, or bone lesions related to the multiple myeloma or related to the plasma cells. Meaning you can't have, you know, uh, an M spike of 1.5, 12% plasma cells and be anemic from you know iron deficiency you need to make sure it's not that uh because uh, if it's that then they don't have myeloma they have smoldering myeloma so it has to be related to the plasma cell proliferation and then there's this slim crab criteria which sometimes shows up on boards where you need uh, a free light chain ratio of greater than 100 to one of the involved versus uninvolved uh, um, or uh, bone marrow plasma cells greater than 60 percent or uh, more than one focal lesion on MRI greater than five millimeters. So if you have any of those, even if you're asymptomatic, uh, you will also meet the definition of myeloma. Okay. So now we've met the definition of myeloma. Uh, um, we understand its difference from MGUS smoldering myeloma and active myeloma. Um, so let's start going over uh, 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 treatment and, and kind of uh, some nuances regarding treatment. So when I see someone with multiple myeloma, um, um, the first thing I want to do is risk stratify them. Every hematologic malignancy has its own risk stratification. Think of it as staging. Um, Unlike solid tumors where you can stage one through four, blood cancers, it's hard to stage one through four, it's in your blood, it's in your bone marrow, it's everywhere. So how do we stage myeloma? There's multiple ways. Uh, uh, The the, the one that we used to use was ISS, which is based off albumin and beta two microglobulin. Um, We now use the revised ISS, which includes beta two microglobulin LDH and uh, cytogenetic Uh, bad cytogenetic actors uh, like translocation 414, uh, 1416, and deletion 17P. So um, um, you need some combination of those things to to risk stratify you into standard, intermediate, or or high risk uh, uh, multiple myeloma. But just getting into the weeds of the cytogenetic abnormalities, which are typically picked up by a fish panel and or karyotype, um, there's many translocations. In general, hyperdiploid, having lots of chromosomes isn't a bad thing in myeloma. Um translocation eleven fourteen, um, is not considered an adverse actor in myeloma, but the ones that are, are the other 14s, 414, 14, 16, 14, 20. Just get that in your brain, 414, 14, 16, 14, 20, and deletion 17P. That one's not hard to remember because we all know deletion 17P sucks in what other cancer you have. There's no good cancer with 17P. So you have 17P, 414, 14, 16, 14, 20, say with me again, you got it memorized, and gain of one Q. Which is the only gain that's a bad actor. The other ones are usually good. So add that gain of 1Q. Now, getting more into the weeds, depending on how much 1Q, you don't need to know that at this point. There's no gain of 1Q, uh, 414, 1416, 1420, deletion 17P. Those are considered a high risk cytogenetic abnormalities. None of this really changes treatment too much, uh, but it does uh, affect prognosis. In general, standard risk myeloma can live over a decade, if not longer. While high risk, it may be anywhere from two to five years and then intermediate somewhere in between. There's also ultra high risk with two of those abnormalities and they do even worse. Remember, these are just generalities. It's not absolutes for the patients in front of you, but that's kind of how I approach risk stratification and multiple myeloma. Okay. So traditionally it was the beta two microglobulin and albumin. And then we add in those cytogenetic risks. And for the RISS, it's a combination of those two. Mm. need some coffee. It's too early for a beer. Um, so let's... um. Let's get into treatment. Okay. So treatment. Um, when I see someone with newly diagnosed myeloma, I first make sure they have myeloma, which we've talked about. Um, and I stage them, um, you know, pets recommended. I I don't do pet in everyone. Um, I usually do a low dose CT and if positive I'm done and I've determined that they have bone disease. If, that's negative, And I think maybe I'm missing bone disease Then I might get an MRI or a PET scan, but I don't willy nilly get a PET scan on everyone. The myeloma community says you should get a PET scan. I don't, uh, I find it not super helpful, but you can get it if you wanna get it, okay? So I, I do usually get low dose skeletal CT, sometime MRI, sometime PET scan. Uh, and again, that's a clinical decision that I that I make, but I do get some f- form of imaging. Um, of course, their beta two microglob and their LDH, aspap, amino fixation, light chains. Um, I uh, uh, um, I less and less get 24 hour urine proteins. I find them not super useful unless there's a clinical concern I, I want for that. Uh, um, and so now I have the patient in their bone marrow biopsy and they're basically now worked up. They don't need an echo. They don't usually need a pick line. Uh, that's kind of my basic workup for these myeloma patients. And, and uh, I risk stratify them. I've talked to them about what this means. So now how do I approach therapy? for newly diagnosed myeloma? Well, there's really three, in the United States, there's three ways to do it, okay? So there's RVD, which is lenalidomide, uh, bortezomib, dexamethasone. Um, there's D which is cyclophosphamide, uh, bortezomib, dexamethasone. And then there's Dara RVD, the quad. So that's uh, RVD plus daratumumab. Um, up until recently, I was basically given RVD for all. Um, and I think RVD is still an appropriate answer on your test. Um, Dara RVD, depending on who's writing the question, might say be be acceptable. And it is, you know, Dara RVD has an improved progression-free survival. Uh, no, excuse me, it had more CRs in a in a in a in a phase two, um, and then in a study in Europe when it was added to VTD to improve progression-free survival. And I don't need this to, I know it's gonna improve progression-free survival, uh, dera It is gonna to lead to deeper remissions, whether it prolongs overall survival combined with RVD, we do not know yet. Um, but based off that, it is considered an acceptable approach. Um, RVD though, up until recently has been my standard, which we'll go over the nuances of how to do that. And then finally, cyborg Um, It's not something we use much uh, uh, anymore outside of rare scenarios uh, where the patient's admitted to the hospital and sick and you can't get the Revlimid fast enough uh, um, or they're in renal failure. And sometimes we'll start with Cyborg D and then transition to RVD. So how do we give RVD? There's many ways uh, um, to give RVD. Um, RVD, uh, in all the studies, they dose the Velcade uh, twice weekly. Um, but in practice and data supports, um, once weekly is fine and there's less neuropathy. So I I never give twice weekly Velcade. Um, And I typically, the trials typically gave 21 day cycles of Revlimid. um, So 14 days of Revlimid, then seven days off with a weekly uh, Velcade. I just do four-week cycles. I find it easier. I like thinking in fours. I, I, you know, these 21-day cycles, they just are, I, I do four weeks. So I'll basically, I do 21 days of Revlimid followed by seven days off. Uh, uh, um, so they get Revlimid 25 milligrams uh, daily for 21 days, and then they're off for seven days. They get weekly Velcade every week, easy for the patient to remember, along with their dexamethasone given in the infusion center when they show up for the Velcade. I check an SPEP, immunofixation, light chains, immunoglobulins, day one of every cycle, and I follow it that. And I find that way fairly easy. Remember when giving Revlimid, you have to adjust the dose if they have renal insufficiency. You can give it to people in renal failure. You just must lower the dose. So if someone has a rapidly changing renal function, like when they're newly diagnosed, then you don't, you hold the Revlimid and you give them Cyborg D. But once the renal function stabilizes, hopefully it's normal. But even if it's abnormal, you can give them the Revlimid, just appropriately adjust the doses. And I could say the doses, but they would be stupid for you to remember the doses. Always look this stuff up when you're adjusting doses in renal failure. I I always do, even if I think I have it memorized. Okay. Uh, You can even give it on dialysis. You just have to look up the doses. Okay. And so they get it every week, 21 days of Revlimid, seven days off the dexamethasone at 40 milligrams. But the more we do this, the more we know we can give less steroids. And I'm very quick uh, to lower the steroids uh, to 20 and, and eventually drop them. Okay. So in transplant eligible patients, they'll usually get three to four cycles of therapy. Now, if you were doing it with daratumumab, it would basically be the same thing added with weekly daratumumab for, it's usually given eight weeks weekly, and then they space it out to every two weeks and eventually monthly. So it's the same thing. And the daratumumab, uh, uh, you know, can now be given subcutaneously. So it's, it's, they're already coming to the infusion center. So it doesn't increase, you know, side effects and toxicity time uh, much more than the RVD. Okay. And so, you know, really with, with RVD, uh, and Dara rvd which we'll now talk about together in the transplant eligible setting, we're giving for four cycles. And um, what are the toxicities? Um, so first with Revlimid or lenalidomide uh, thromboembolism, um, and there's various things that can increase the risk of thromboembolism, whether they had a history of DVT, duh, uh, uh, um, whether they're on lots of steroids, whether they're uh, more mobile, whether they're getting kyprolis, And so for all patients, I recommend at least aspirin 81 milligrams who are on lenalidomide. Uh, In certain scenarios, I'll use Eliquis. uh, uh, um, And again, we don't have randomized data to help us figure out who really needs what. And it's kind of the the gestalt of the prescribing doctor. Clearly, if they have a history of VTE, they're all getting uh, Eliquis. And um, so that uh, the other things with the lenalidomide, uh, there's rashes that you can see, uh, fatigue, low blood counts, secondary malignancies, uh, including bad scary TP fifty three mutations. You know, those are skin cancers. Uh, um, you know, those are kind of what you see with Revlimid, uh, it's not horrible, but some people feel crappy on it. Well, hopefully they're feeling better because their myeloma is getting treated. Uh, um, as far as the, uh, Velcade, the Bortezomib, um, it can cause some local injection site irritation, diarrhea the day after, you know, a lot of people get diarrhea with it, but the big thing with, uh, Bortezomib is the neuropathy a peripheral neuropathy that can, um, If you don't pay attention to it, it can uh, really cause permanent peripheral neuropathy. And that's what you don't want to play guitar like me. That would be a game changer. Uh, I don't know what I would do with myself if I could not play the guitar or feel my fingertips. And we all know that when they come into clinic, uh, with neuropathy, there's really little we can do for the neuropathy, but sprinkle the gabapentin on it. It never helps. And it's very frustrating. So the best thing you can do is prevent uh, uh, peripheral neuropathy uh, uh, in, in these patients. Okay. So uh, lower the dose, omit it. You know, once they start getting bad neuropathy, you just stop it. Let them recover. Don't keep beating them over the head uh, with more Velcade while their nerves are being fried. Okay. That's this, this stupid way to do it. Um, as far as if you add the daratumumab, there can be infusion reactions. It's not so bad now with subcutaneous. Sometimes people get like an asthma or a wheezing with the daratumumab. Uh, just remember it can alter uh, uh, ABO blood testing because uh, it sticks to the red blood cells. So you need to notify the blood bank before you start someone on daratumumab so they can do appropriate type and screen uh, 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 of your patient. I need some coffee. So that's Dara RVD. And you know, you typically give it for three to four cycles or RVD for three to four cycles. And um, then you would approach uh, the transplant decision. So for the boards, autologous transplant for those eligible, it prolongs progression-free survival, okay? Um, We know this numerous studies, the most two recent, the IFM09 and determination, both showed a progression-free survival for upfront transplant, okay? Neither study showed an overall survival advantage in the era of modern RVD therapy. Uh, and one of the studies, very few people determination got transplant relapse, only about twenty percent, and it still showed no overall survival. The bottom line is it prolongs progression-free survival. Um, it may, in some, prolong overall survival, but it doesn't seem so clear cut, uh, and it's a nuanced discussion. But for board purposes, and for people who qualify, who you know want a first-long PFS, RVD, dare RVD, followed by stem cell collection, uh, followed by autologous stem cell transplant. Okay, um, let's get into the weeds a little bit about autologous transplant, how we actually do it. I just went through the data, Prolongs, PFS, uh, and those who are eligible for the procedure, but you don't have to do it and you don't need to do it right away. You can do it at relapse if you want, okay? But you need to collect the patients because if you keep on giving them Revlimid forever, you're gonna fry their bone marrow. You won't be able to collect their stem cells, okay? So how do we collect stem cells? So what we do is um, we um, make sure they have good venous access. Um, and uh, if they do, they can do this through a peripheral IV. If they don't, you have to put a phoresis catheter in, and we give these patients, um, for four days in a row, they get GCSF at 10 mg per kg. That stimulates their bone marrow. Uh, it stimulates neutrophil production, and then the stem cells kind of get out of the bone marrow and start going into the blood, and then on the fourth day, we give them a drug called plerixafor, which is otherwise known as mozabil. And that interferes with the action, uh, with the interaction of the stem cell stroma and the stem cells in the bone marrow. So the stem cell stroma secretes something called stem side drive factor one alpha, and um, it's like food for the stem cells. So when there's a lot of SDF one alpha in the bone marrow, the stem cells sit there. When you give mozabil blocks the CXCR4 receptor on the stem cells. That's the receptor for SDF1-alpha. And then those stem cells get blocked from the SDF1-alpha and then they leak into the blood. So four days of GCSF, give them a little Moza bill on the fourth evening. They come back in the next day to the infusion center and get another dose of GCSF. Then we hook them up to apheresis. We collect the stem cells. Most patients we collect in one day. Some we bring back for two days. We usually collect enough stem cells, six times, six to eight, 10 times 10 to the six CD34 positive cells per kilogram enough for two transplants, although I don't think we're going to be doing two transplants much longer in most patients. And, but we, sometimes it's nice to have extra cells for like a stem cell boost after CAR T or all these crazy things we do in the relapse setting. Okay, so that's the the protocol for stem cell collection. Now we have the stem cells. We put them in the freezer. They're preserved in DMSO. And then we start the transplant, which is melphalan 200 milligrams per meter squared. You actually have to know that dose for boards. They've studied other things in in, in myeloma. That's the champion. Melphalan 200 milligrams per meter squared and then are in the hospital, or you can even do an outpatient for about 12 to 14 days with low blood counts, bad diarrhea, infections, sometimes mucositis, and then they recover, and then they recover over the next three months. Usually they're tired for three months, and then their quality of life returns to normal within three months of the transplant. So that's the transplant in a nutshell. So to re- recap, transplant eligible, eligible patients, RVD or dare rvd three to four cycles, collect stem cells, do the transplant upfront or delay to relapse, although it's not the end of the world if they never go to relapse, if they never go to transplant, because there's a lack in overall survival advantage in the two most recent studies. Um, but say they've done the transplant, now it's day 100, are you done or do you have to do something else? So at this point we discuss maintenance. And by then they've recovered from the transplant, patients are feeling better and um, there's many maintenance strategies in myeloma. There's only one answer right now that's appropriate for the test, and that's lenalidomide. So lenalidomide maintenance has been studied in numerous randomized clinical trials. It's prolonged progression-free survival in all of them and in some prolonged overall survival. The meta-analysis of lenalidomide also prolonged overall survival, so we give it, okay? So we typically start at day 100 to 120. You start at 10 milligrams daily. After a few months, if they tolerate it, you you increase to 15 milligrams. And then in the United States, we tend to go forever. Although in Europe, only two years. I typically try to do two years. If the patient has any issues with the lenalidomide, I stop it, okay? If they're doing fine and understand that there's a slight risk of secondary cancers, I continue it, okay? They stay on the aspirin the whole time. So that's how you do lenalidomide maintenance. As far as all these crazy things the myeloma docs are doing with doublet maintenance and triplet maintenance, you know, it's not much maintenance when you're given more than just lenalidomide. that's based off some randomized phase three data with PFS benefit, no overall survival. And the data is not there. It is not standard practice. I think in select individuals with ultra high-risk myeloma, you can discuss doublet maintenance, okay? Uh, I'm not gonna go, there's plenty of podcasts, you know, nerding out on that stuff. That's not what this is for, okay? So that's 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 newly diagnosed transplant eligible. Not, it's not so hard, the myeloma docs make it hard. It's not hard, okay? Um, highly effective. So what about transplant ineligible? So transplant ineligible. Um, got a seventy-three year old, and we're not we're not giving them two hundred milligrams per meter square of methylene. I'm not gonna that that's not fun. We're gonna do a non-transplant approach, okay? And um, you could do RVD, you know, the swag double, the swag zero triple seven. RVD versus um, doublet therapy prolonged overall survival. And you know, you give the RVD for eight cycles and then you give the Revlimid plus or minus the dexamethasone uh, for eight cycles, excuse me. Um, That was the standard. I will say that RVD, especially when you get up there in age, uh, the 80-year-olds, um, neuropathy, if LK becomes a pain to give those patients and their life sucks, you can they fall from orthostatic hypotension, neuropathy, it's just very tough to give, okay? Um, so what we have been doing is what's called RVD light, which is basically dose reductions of all those drugs. You can look up the protocol. It's a phase two from MD Anderson. And I had been doing that up until the Maya study, and this changed my practice. And this was a randomized study of daratumumab revlimid dexamethasone, first revlimid dexamethasone, um, in uh, patients who were not going to transplant in newly diagnosed myeloma. It, it improved PFS and it improved overall survival. Control arm, you could say, kind of sucked. Um, it, you know, I wasn't using RD. I think a better control would have been RVD. But at the time the study was developed, RD was appropriate. You can see my numerous podcasts and discussions with uh, Prasad and other people about control arms and myeloma. Um, so Dara rvd e- it's easy to give. The patients do really well on it. And, and like the meeting PFS is like, I don't know, six to seven. It's, it's humongous. And in a seven year old that's great, you know, especially with standard risk myeloma. So I've been giving Dara rvd Dara DERA-REV-DEX to my older individuals And then after a set amount of cycles, I stop. you know, usually after eight, I stop the daratumab. I stop the DEX and continue them on Revlimid and let them enjoy their life, live a remission. That's how I do it. You know, Um, some other nuances that I left out on, and this applies to both settings. Uh, um, I forgot to tell you the Velcade bortezomib causes shingles. All those patients need to be on a cyclovir prophylaxis. Uh, um, As far as bone uh 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 therapy to prevent fractures um you know uh, there's two drugs we tip, well, there's three there's pomidronate, zolindronic acid and uh, denosumab the bisphosphonates uh zoledronic acid and pomidronate. Uh, i i mainly use zomeda zolindronic acid um there was a randomized study that looked at 3 versus 1 month 3 month was just as good so i no longer give monthly zolindronic acid i give it for 3 months for 2 years If they have any dental issues or, you know, I don't, I'm scared about it. I don't want to necrose their jaw. uh, So I hold off on the zolendronic acid. Um, As far as denosumab, in the randomized study, it appeared to be safer than Zometa for the kidneys, but they excluded people with really bad kidney dysfunction. And it's mega expensive and it was given monthly. And it causes horrific hypocalcemia. Um, It showed it improved PFS, which was magical and not real, and just kind of spurious noise, in my opinion. So I don't really use denosumab. I think it's a waste of... uh, a waste of money and not a game changer. Uh, um, you know, if their renal function's bad, I'm scared to give either drug because I don't want to cause hypocalcemia. And remember, you know, these aren't game changers. These drugs they do decrease the risk of fracture, but you know, not game changers. Okay. And as our myeloma therapy gets better, maybe they're less important. Uh, who knows? Okay. So that is kind of how I do newly diagnosed myeloma. Um, I hope I provided a different perspective than uh, what you see. On some other podcast or educational material, um, and I hope this was useful. Uh, please leave feedback, and uh, we're gonna do all. We're gonna do them all. We're gonna do, we're gonna do all, all the cancers um, um, until we we get them all. And when we get them all, I'll probably have to redo them because um, it seems like every day now there's a new drug coming out and it's going to change our management again. Okay, so so this will be never ending. Okay, uh, I'll see you next time, guys.